going to read God's word this morning and we're reading first of all from, from the book of Isaiah and reading from Isaiah chapter 61. Let's hear the word of God. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives and release from darkness for the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn and to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, the oil of joy instead of mourning and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of his splendor. They will rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated. They will renew the ruined cities that have been devastated for generations. Strangers will shepherd your flocks. Foreigners will work your fields and vineyards. And you will be called priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and their riches. In their riches you will boast. Instead of your shame, you will receive a double portion. And instead of disgrace, you will rejoice in your inheritance. So that you will inherit a double portion in your land. An everlasting joy will be yours. For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. In my faithfulness, I will reward my people and make an everlasting covenant with them. Their descendants will be known among the nations and their offspring among the peoples. All who see them will acknowledge that they are a people the Lord has blessed. I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God. For he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arrayed me in a robe of his righteousness as a bridegroom adorns his head like a priest and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels. For as the soil makes the young plant come up and the garden causes seed to grow, so the sovereign Lord will make righteous and praise spring up before all nations. Amen. And then reading from the New Testament, these words. From the Gospel of Luke. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread throughout the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he'd been brought up. And on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, and proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. Then, He rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened 
on him. He began by saying to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we come to these ancient words, we pray that you would fill us again with the joy and the hope of your gospel. If our faith is faint, that you would flame it until it burns. If our hope seems very frail, that by your Spirit you would strengthen us again in our Lord Jesus. Amen. It was in Nazareth that it happened. Modern commentators would call it a mic drop. It's all right. Sound team, but I'm not about to drop the mic. That bit where the speaker says something that suddenly makes the audience go, Jesus took the scroll, read Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3, looked them in the eye, and said, That's me. He was referring back to mysterious language. A mysterious figure that we discover as we go through the book of Isaiah. We looked a little bit at this when we looked at chapter 53. A mysterious figure called the servant of the Lord who is shown to us in the second part of the book of Isaiah. But we'll come back to that because this isn't primarily about a Bible study between the Old Testament and the New Testament. It's about something that's far more basic. Do you know that groaning that you find in your own heart? That groaning that you have as you look at the world today and you think, it shouldn't be like this. That groaning of dissatisfaction with life or with the world around you. That thing in your head that says, it it should be different from this. That disappointment that is so often there with the current reality. That brokenness that just yearns for somebody to make it go away. That anger. That frustration, that broken heartedness. That says, I want something better than this. I want something better for my community. I want something better for my family. I want something better for myself. Or even I want something better from myself. Do you know what I'm talking about? Do you? Have you felt it? Because I feel it every day. And I think most of us do. Jesus looks the people of Nazareth who knew him in the eye that day and he says, see that groaning? I'm the answer. I'm the only answer. I'm it. 
The pains that won't heal, the questions that won't answer, the loss that won't be restored, the restlessness that never finds peace. Jesus is saying to these people, I'm the only peace, I'm the only answer, I'm the only way, I'm the only hope, I'm the only healer. Of all the seasons of the Christian year, I love Advent. I love Advent. It's one of the reasons I don't want to rush into Christmas too quickly. Not because I don't like Christmas. I I love Christmas. But I just want to hold the Advent moment for a little while. Because what Advent does, as it takes us back and it makes us think about those folk who were waiting for that first Christmas, is it comes and it addresses us. It reminds us, not just in the past, that for years people were looking for something different. It reminds us that as Israel, through all the days of the judges and all the days of the kings and all the days of the exiles, had that yearning that God was going to do something, so today we still have that yearning. You know that hymn where it says, the hopes and fears of all the years are met in you tonight? It's not just talking about the Old Testament and its yearning. It's talking about our yearning, our brokenness, our desperate cry for God to do something. And that's why I love the fact that Advent starts on the first Sunday, not by looking back to the past and saying what did it feel like for them, but actually starting where we are now. As we say, we look for the Lord to come again, for Jesus to return and sometimes that can seem really weird. I, I, I remember as a youngster, I, I, I couldn't work it out. I knew Jesus had died for my sins. I got that. I, I knew he'd risen again and that was the hope. But I couldn't work out why there was this little bit that talked about Jesus coming back. It just seemed sort of a bit creeping and a, a bit strange. But actually, it reminds us every time we pray, every time we cry, every time we say this should not be, That we are yearning in our hearts for that day where God will put everything right. And the Bible ends with those words, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen, come Lord Jesus. Now we've been going through the book of Isaiah for these last weeks. And I could spend some time reminding us of the historic background to the two parts of Isaiah. The first part of Isaiah written about 740 BC where the people have lost their way, the kings are are, are corrupt, the government's no use, there's godlessness and injustice and outside there's the menace of the Assyrians and God speaking words of promise in that day. Or we could skip to the second part of it where this comes from which is about 150 years later, where things in some ways have got much worse. Jerusalem has actually been destroyed by the Babylonians, and they've been carried off into exile. And now there is just the beginnings of a hope that they might return, return home. But the point in both of these passages is that things are not right, and people are looking for God. And indeed, If you go to any passage in the Bible, you almost find the same thing. The the particular circumstances of the historic moment, the particular background in the world politics that's going on, but it's the same cycle in the Old Testament, isn't it? Things are broken, 
people cry out to God and God sends somebody, a saviour. It might be Moses. It might be a king. It might be a prophet. It might be Gideon. It might be Samson. It doesn't matter who it is. God sends someone and he brings them back to the Lord. And as he does that, they kick out their enemies or they get back home or, or, or they get set free from Egypt. But then the cycle begins again. That they turn away. And so it rinses and it repeats. And what we begin to find in Isaiah is something bigger than that. Because it's God saying to the people in their particular broken historic circumstances then, not just, I'm going to send in the first part of it, Hezekiah, who's going to be a slightly better king, or in the second part of it, I'm going to enable you to get back home because the Babylonian Empire will fall to the Persians and Cyrus will let you go back to Jerusalem and rebuild it. But actually a bigger picture, where God starts to say, all these servants, all these kings, all these leaders that I've sent you in each generation, point to this. I'm going to send the servant. I'm going to send not just a person that will save you in this particular circumstances, but they all point to what I want to do for creation itself in sorting the problems. And Isaiah begins to point to this figure of the the great servant that will come, the great king that will come, the great Messiah that will come. And we saw in Isaiah 53 that that, that that king would come and he would suffer. And it would be a bigger salvation. It would be a bigger salvation than just letting people go back home in that particular time. In fact, Isaiah 49, it says this, I'm sending someone to be a saviour and it's too small a thing to expect that he's just going to come and set free the tribes of Jacob. But I'm going to send him to be a light to the Gentiles. That is a solution and a saviour for the whole of the world, for the whole of the earth. You see, that's why when Jesus preached in Nazareth from, from Isaiah 61, after he preached, they ran him out of town. I hope you'll be a bit kinder to me. I'm hoping for a lunch afterwards, not been run out of town. But as Jesus preached in Isaiah 61, they ran him out of town because he wasn't just saying, look, I did some miracles in Capernaum. I'm going to come and do that here. It's all going to be good. He was actually saying, I'm coming to change the whole of the world. I'm the Alpha and the Omega. I'm the beginning and the end. I'm the one through whom your whole history, your whole yearning points to. That's what it's all about here. That's why C.S. Lewis in his writings said this. When you really look at what Jesus is saying, there's only three conclusions you can make. Either this man is a liar, or this man is a lunatic, or this man is God. Jesus doesn't leave you with a place where you can say, oh, well, he comes and does some nice stuff and he helps me through my day and that's fine. He only comes to a place where we can say that he is God or he is insane or he's deceiving us. The passage begins by saying, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Notice here what you've got. The spirit of the sovereign Lord is upon me. There's three persons there, isn't there? 
God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. Three persons there. And it says that the Spirit is anointing me. Now, again, in the New Testament, we find the Spirit coming down on Jesus like a dove and and the voice from the Father that says, this is my Son. And that word anointed is an important word in the Old Testament because anointed is what was done when people were sent for a special mission. Aaron was anointed a priest. David was anointed a king. Here, Jesus is the anointed one. And the word, incidentally, in Hebrew for anointed one is Messiah. In Greek, it is Christos, or Christ. That's why when we talk about Jesus Christ, it's not that Christ was his surname. Somebody says, hello, Mr. Christ. It's actually what we're saying is Jesus is the anointed one of God. He is the one that is sent. And notice something else here, and this is really important. It says that Jesus has come to proclaim good news to the poor. Good news. That's what the angel said, isn't it? I come to give you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. And I'm looking out just now. Presbyterian skills. You know, if I can say one thing, if you can just remember one thing from this sermon today, it would be this. The gospel's good news. And if it doesn't lift you, if it doesn't make you, as a Christian, go out saying, Hallelujah, God loves me. Hallelujah, what has he done for me in Jesus? Then we've missed the whole point of it. It's good news. It's good news. It's good news. That means you're happy. You know, Christmas is coming, and that, that really excites a lot of folk. Um, also, starts a debate every year, doesn't it? Not just about how quickly we put the Christmas tree up, and we'll have to agree to differ on that one. But there is another debate that, that Christians often have, which is, should we be doing Santa? Should we be doing elves? Now, it's all right, I'm not going to tell you off if you, if you do these things. That's not my point. It's actually quite a good debate to have, because it's at least got us thinking, if we're telling our children true stories about God's workings, then is there a danger that if we're telling them untrue stories we're confusing them to the point that folks start to say, well, you used to tell me about Santa and I don't believe that anymore, so what about the God stuff? So I just hold that thought. There's not a right answer to that, by the way. But I'll tell you what, what slightly concerns me more when we put on all that stuff is this. I don't want to be a killjoy coming along saying, let's get rid of it all. But are we really saying that the gospel... The Christmas story, the incarnation, is a bit boring and needs a bit of spicing up. You know, here's what I'd like to do. I wouldn't like to go along banning Santa Claus or any of that stuff. But what I would like to do is to be so excited about Jesus coming that actually everything else just pales into insignificance. Yeah, it's great fun that there's a new Doctor Who series. And it's great fun that we can play with an elf. And it's great fun that we can sing Jingle Bells. That's fantastic. But you know what? As Christians, we know what all this is about. We are so excited about the fact that that yearning deep within us is met in Jesus Christ come into the world to save us. This is good news. This makes shepherds sing. This makes Simeon and Anna dance in their old age. 
What would it be if the church was so on fire, so excited by this good news, that it wasn't going to be a bunch of killjoys. We were really going to show people how to party at Christmas. Because we have the best news in the whole of the world. In fact, it's it's interesting. I was reading something the other day, and it it, it was talking about um, Tolkien, who wrote The Lord of the Rings. Perhaps the greatest fairy tale there ever was. And Tolkien, who was a committed Christian, a Roman Catholic, he, he was asking the question, why is it that fairy tales seem to have such a hold over us in our secular age? Why is it that these things, whether it's Disney or The Lord of the Rings or Hansel and Gretel, why is it these things grab us so much? And Tolkien said it is because they are a fleeting glimpse that something is going on beyond the walls of the world. That we feel in our bones, as much as we know these things aren't true, that there should be a new exciting reality. And what Tolkien suggested, and C.S. Lewis said much the same thing, who, who wrote the Narnia, is that these, these little fairy tales are actually pointers to a gospel message of the true myth, the true fairy story, the true that lies beyond all that aspiration that somehow there should be a happily ever after in our university. It would be wonderful and enchanting if there was a large furry man in a red coat who really went around giving good things to all the children regardless of whether they were rich or poor. But isn't it so much more amazing that there is a real saviour who enters our world to bring good news to the poor? Isn't that so much more terrific? And that is, in a part, what this passage is saying as as it goes on from that. It is saying that the coming of Christ is transformational. Good news to the poor, binding for the brokenhearted, freedom from the captive, release for the prisoner, and the year of the Lord's favour. That's what Jesus said he was come to proclaim. What does that all mean? It means nothing being ever the same again. You know, I I, I was reading something um, the other day which said, as it, as, it, as, it, as it referred to this passage, it said, Do not leave your congregation thinking this means social or political change. This is all about change of the heart. I don't know what Bible that was written, but it seemed to be nonsense. The passage, the, the commentator I was reading said, The poor here means the poor in spirit, not the, the, not the actual poor. But if you want to understand this, you have to understand that Jesus stood up in Nazareth and said, look at me, this is about me. And what do you see when you see Jesus touching people's lives? You see somebody who comes in among the poor. You see someone who actually makes blind people see, hungry people be fed, lonely people, isolated people, people that are being rejected, be included. This is actually about social transformation. It's definitely about that. That's what Jesus was about all the time. And freedom of release to the captives. This is absolutely transformational. This comes straight from the Exodus story. And what was that all about? It was about taking a bunch of slaves and giving them actual physical freedom. It wasn't just a metaphor. And this also, this year of the Lord's favour, is a, a reference to something in Leviticus, which I always find amazing. And it's this. 
In the book of Leviticus, which perhaps is not the book you think of when I say fun, is it? But in the book of Leviticus chapter 25, it, it has what's called the year of Jubilee. And the year of Jubilee was once every 50 years, the people of Israel were told to blow a trumpet. And as they blew that trumpet, they were to cancel all the debts. So if you had a bank overdraft, it was gone. If you had a mortgage, it was paid off. And if you had lost land because you'd had to sell your family's piece of land because you were so poor, you got it back. It was a reset year. A reset year where all the debts were forgiven and everything was put back right. A transformation. A setting free of society. You know, however you read this, however you read the book of Isaiah and as we read through it, it is about God changing the world, the politics, the economics, even the ecology of it. Nature itself being healed, which matters so much in our day where we're in danger of destroying nature. But of course it's about more than that. Because it's not just about God moving us, changing us, that we might transform our society around us. But it's actually about God coming and dealing with the very problems that cause it themselves. And that's where the spiritual dimension that makes all this possible comes into it. The Jesus who comes in order that all the destruction and all the pain and all the sin that make the world the mess it is that we yearn for being different is dealt with in him that our relationship with God might be restored. And as that is happening, we might become beacons that bring that transformation all of society that is broken. So the hope that we have at Advent isn't just a political hope or an ecological hope or an economic hope, although it is all those things. It is actually about the God who comes in order that there might be forgiveness of sins, in order that there might be relationship restored, in order that all the yearning might be met as our God comes. They are able to rebuild the ancient ruins and restore the places long devastated and that's what they would go back to do as they rebuilt Jerusalem. But they're able to do that because they know the promise that will sustain them through all of that. That God is sending in Jesus Christ a Messiah who will make all things new. Comfort for those who mourn. A crown of beauty instead of ashes. Joy instead of mourning. Praise instead of despair. A planting of the Lord. Now we could go through that verse by verse. It's alright, I'm not going to. But just get that sense of the joy of it. For this is what Advent means. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen.